Hey, yo, hey, yeah, come on, land. Hey, hey, here we are. Hey, hey, climbing from the line. Hey, 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 let's stay start hey, and stop. Vamos falar, solta o verbo, tamo aqui pra apavorar. Aí, juventude, fica ligada. Lorena chegou aqui na parada. Vamos falar. Climate change, climate mitigation, o que você pode fazer pra melhorar a sua vida e de todo mundo que tá perto aí? Good morning, afternoon, evening, wherever you may be. My name is Alfredo and you are now tuned in to the Climate Frontline podcast. In this show, we engage with leaders in different industries, in social movements, as well as artists. And we have conversations that change the climate narrative by moving the microphone or moving the spotlight closer to those people who are at the front line of climate change. And the community, our community here, we do this one conversation at a time. So today I'm excited to bring in someone who I not only consider a friend, but also a mentor and someone who has a been in the environmental industry for quite some time welcome greg to the show and welcome thank thank you for hosting me in your house today <laughs> well thank you for inviting me alfredo it's a privilege to be a part of your podcast yeah well it's it's exciting to be here this is the fourth conversation that i've had as part of my tour going around the pacific northwest and it's good to also, I just want to give a quick shout out to the folks in in the EPOC group, the Environmental Professionals of Color in Portland. There's another one in Seattle as well, but that's actually how I met you through one of those social gatherings, as well as just take a second to acknowledge the land that we're here on. So would you like to make that acknowledgement, Greg? I'd be happy to, Alfredo. So we're in the city of Lake Oswego, and in this region, historically, we had the Kalapuya people, the Atfalati people, and we're within the Confederated Tribes of the Grand Ronde. Yeah, thank you for that, Greg. I, I appreciate you sharing a little bit of that, and I think it's important for for folks in, in the community to just become more familiar with the peoples whose land you live on. And it's a journey that I've had to start again and again, depending on where I move. So thank you for doing that, Greg. Uh, so there are folks who are listening to this podcast who may not know who you are. So could you just share a little bit of maybe your favorite food and uh, and your journey in this in this thing called life? Okay, well, thank you. I have a lot of favorite foods. I'm, I'm mostly vegetarian, and so I tend to make a lot of kind of miscellaneous sorts of stir fries and throwing all kinds of things in there, like tofu and tempeh and seitan and then vegetables, wide range of vegetables and rice. And so I do a lot of variations on that with a lot of different sauces. I do eat seafood as well and uh, enjoy that. You know, of course, we're in the Northwest and we have a, a wide range of amazing salmon and other anatomous fish uh, that are available to us. So that kind of encompasses a lot of my diet, a lot of, a lot of whole grains, a lot of cereal, um, smoothies, yeah, a lot of good stuff. Yeah, and thank you for that. And when is it really that you started getting involved in the environmental movement? How did that happen? It kind of happened by accident. I was in Southern California, 
and I was about a year out of college. And um, I was in the Pasadena area, and a girlfriend of mine who lived in Pasadena was offered two jobs. And the job that she didn't take, she referred to me. And it was with an organization called Outward Bound Adventures, or we call OBA for short. And OBA is not part of the Outward Bound School that you're familiar with. It's a nonprofit organization uh, based, again, out of Pasadena, works with middle and senior high school students uh, from Los Angeles and East LA, uh, predominantly black and brown children, taking them out into wild places, backpacking, hiking, uh, water activities, snow activities. And so you have to realize they started back in the early 60s by a teacher, middle school teacher, who started an Audubon club. And that evolved into Outward Bound Adventures. And so that was my first job, taking kids in the outdoors, out backpacking, out to the Mojave Desert. OBA went to the High Sierras, to Mount Whitney. And, and so I just, I kind of got thrown into it by accident. Uh, but that's how I got started. And so obviously, I learned about environmental issues as we were outdoors. We met park rangers. Uh, we got involved in different issues, uh, the Alaska Lands Act, uh, to preserve that land, got the kids involved. They got to meet con Congress people, uh, write letters, draw pictures of conflicts of reindeer and pipelines and things like that. So that's that's how I got started. Yeah, that's definitely something that that I appreciated when you shared with me when we first met because I too wanted to be more outdoors and and be more with nature and. Once I found out that you had these experiences, it made sense to just learn more from you as it relates to your journey in, in, in getting to those opportunities and spaces, right? I also know that uh, you do a lot of work around workforce development. So could you give me like a little overview of what, what that is that about? Okay. Well, my workforce experience started out working with Conservation Corps programs uh, in California, the California Conservation Corps. So um, started out, there's a training center up in the Sierra Foothills, and they, they throw everybody in there for five weeks. The trainees, the staff, everybody, 16-hour days uh, for five weeks to understand how the crews work. We had crews uh, up in big trees in Calaveras County. We had a, a large farm operation with compost, compost piles, organic gardens, farm animals. We had a maintenance crew that was learning about facilities maintenance. And we would run 80 to 100 young adults, they're mostly age 18 to 24, uh, through that program, cycling through throughout the year. And then they would get dispersed out to the conservation course centers throughout the state. So that was, that was my beginning because I, I was a farm supervisor. I wanted to be farm supervisor because I never lived on a farm. And so I thought it would be a good experience. So I had one week before 80 core members came to learn all the farm operations so that I could in turn teach them. And, and that's how I got started. I worked with other Conservation Corps programs and workforce. I started one here in Portland when I worked for the U.S. Forest Service. It was called Urban Rangers. And that was an eight-week paid summer job for high school students from Grand High School and Madison High School. And so it was full-on Conservation Corps created from scratch. They had uniforms, had boots, hard hats. They, all, all the gear, all the tools. They worked on the National Forest. They worked on, on Metro. 
natural areas and they worked with City of Portland. So we had agreements with all of those agencies as well as Portland Public Schools. A lot of people don't realize Portland Public Schools has a, an amazing grants management office. And so when they knew that I was bringing funding from the Forest Service to them, they were really willing to do the administrative work, funnel the money into the school district. The kids became employees of Portland Public Schools so that they could get paid every week. Because you know, if a kid's going to work eight weeks during the summer, they don't have to. They don't want to have to wait a week for a paycheck. So we worked it out so they could they could uh, work every week. It was it was good sort of. I, I focused on those schools because they had a you know quite diverse student populations, and they got to know each other from different schools, different parts of the city. Um, they worked four days a week. Uh, and the fifth day was community service. So sometimes they worked with younger kids. They worked at community gardens. Uh, they worked with, uh, you know, sustainability projects and that sort of thing. So that was really an education day for them. And they got to work with uh, fish biologists, wildlife biologists, you know, a range of professionals uh, on the National Forest to, to learn about their careers. Yeah. Thank you for that, Greg. I think I, I appreciate the different experiences you've had and I'm hearing a lot of youth and a lot of education, which I foresaw coming. You know, I think we both share that interest and and passion for for doing that. Hence, this podcast. Hence, many other conversations that you and I have had. And I think uh, I'm excited to dive deeper into how would those relate to the climate frontline, right? Because mm -hmm. that's the show that we're on on right now. And before doing that, though, I think what's important is to really take some time to understand language and how it is that we navigate different spaces, whether that's with youth or in the education space, uh, working for government in, in different instances. So I would be curious to know, how is it that, that you experience language in, in the work you do? Well, because I worked primarily in natural resources, um, language Language, of course, in science and environment can be very sort of convoluted. You have a lot of acronyms. There's a lot of sort of bureaucracy. And so I think when you're, when you're working with kids, you kind of have to let go of that. And you have to find ways for them to, to actually get, physically get involved with work and with projects and to, to let go of some of that you know, government ease you know, in the language. I think it's also important for folks that are an older generation to understand how kids and, and young adults communicate now. It's very different than it was before. Uh, when I worked on the National Forest, um, before I was working in conservation education, I was a forest planner and we had to get these documents out. It was the, the forest plan, the final environmental impact statement, all the, the national forests uh, in the region and nationally had to get these out. And we did it in a very different way than it would be done now. Um, I actually had to hand carry documents to a government printing facility in Salt Lake City. I mean, the master documents and to go on printing presses and the maps had to go through there and that sort of thing. So, I mean, kids today would look at that and, and think it's something they read about in a history book. You know, there, there, there was no digital transfer of information. So I think that that sort of intergenerational understanding of how, you know, young people communicate now, I, I think it's important for the older generation in terms of language. And, and it doesn't mean that the older folks have to learn 
you know, all the slang and understand the Urban Dictionary and everything. I mean, don't go out of your way to try to be cool because kids know if that's fake or not, right? <laughs> you know, just be yourself, be genuine, and show, show your caring. That's what's important because, you know, we have to pass the torch over and, and the young folks are going to be running things. You know, they're going to be in government, they're going to be running companies, going to be, you know, executive directors for, for nonprofit organizations. So uh, I think really just the language of, of caring and being generous with your time uh, is, is really important. Awesome. Yeah, I, I appreciate the, the simplicity in the language that, that, has, um, that you speak. And that's from the very beginning since I got to know you is that uh, whenever you spoke to me, it made sense. <laughs> it wasn't like acronyms or, you know, some kind of uh, language or slang that's used in, in institutions or in the workplace, like scope, you know, SOP, all these things that to me was like, okay, I already learned English. And now you want me to do this other hoop again? You know, yeah. I think I had enough with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When, when we did these Forest Service documents, I, was in, I insisted that we actually have a whole page for acronyms at the beginning of the documents oh. before people even got to the first page. Mm. You know, and, and a lot of translation of, of modernizing language, that's another thing. I mean, the government would tend to use he as a pronoun mm. for, for any example of a person, right? Or every tree was timber. No, not every tree is a tree to be cut yeah. and, used for wow. and used for lumber. So that was part of my work, a lot of writing and editing kind of work that I did uh, when I started with the Forest Service, just to kind of help to bring the agency into the to modern times, as, as modern as it was at that time. Yeah. So as, as you mentioned that, I think what comes up for me is also what other challenges you faced during that time, because... Uh, I know there's a lot of initiatives for youth of color to be more in the in the space mm -hmm. with nature and whatnot. So, mm -hmm. could you paint a little bit more of a picture of how is it that we have an outcome of not having so many people of color in in nature? Well, a lot of it has to do with history, and uh, there's a lot of a lot of good books out right now talking about the cat the history behind that, the caste system, the history of slavery, uh, you know, the dominance and submissive kind of paradigms that uh, people of color have experienced uh, since being in this country. And so, you know, nature was, a, was an adversarial place, especially in the South. You, you didn't want to be, if you were a black person, you didn't want to be out in the woods wandering alone or even walking along the roads. It could be very dangerous. Uh, you could end up being killed, being lynched. And so nature and big trees and, and spaces that were unprotected uh, felt unsafe. And so some of that has carried on. You know, we had the Great Migration beginning in the 1920s, you know, into the early 1950s of people moving into urban areas, the northeast part of the state, the Midwest. Uh, of course, they weren't allowed to come to Oregon because Oregon was designated as a white homeland. So that's why we have so few black people in Portland now. Um, and, and so that makes it a little challenging because camping means sleeping on the ground. And sleeping on the ground, for, for a lot of people of color, especially of an older generation, that's kind of going back to a time when 
you know, there was more poverty. Living conditions were terrible in the South, extreme poverty. Sometimes people didn't even have, barely had, uh, you know, floors in their homes, you know. And so, you know, the notion is why would I want to sleep on the ground? Why would I want to sleep, you know, on dirt? Um, and then there's concern about wild animals. And then, of course, now uh, there's been an uprise in uh, threats and intimidation to people of color outdoors. And fortunately, there, there's also sort of a counter movement to help people of color to feel more comfortable and feel safe in the outdoors and to learn how to, to deal with those, those kinds of adversarial situations. So, so there are a lot of reasons, and, and that's why I'm so happy that so many groups are emerging now that are bringing more people of color outdoors. I'll talk a little bit more about one that I'm involved with later. Uh, but we have people of color outdoors. We have wild diversity. Uh, I co-founded an organization called the African American Outdoor Association uh, now, 15 years ago now. It's Latinos outdoors. So uh, there, is a, there is a big push to claim public lands because they belong to all of us. Uh, people... You know, they pay taxes or they, they elect officials to, to acquire and protect these lands. And so we all need to claim our space out in the natural environment. Yeah, I just have so many questions for you because I want the audience to, to also find out a little bit of, 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 of what you did. But before we do that, this is the Climate Frontline podcast. So I'm curious to know, from your perspective, how do you understand or how do you define Climate Frontline? Mm -hmm. Well, the analogy that you've probably heard before that makes sense to me, you know, we have health worker frontline people, and they've been the lifesavers in COVID. Uh, they've been most exposed to the people that are infected. Uh, they are most at risk. They have a higher proportion of uh, getting the disease. Uh, they're the ones that are changing the beds. They're the ones that are helping people get to the bathroom. Uh, they're, they're, front, they're the frontline workers. And there's been a lot of acknowledgement and respect for the frontline workers. Uh, but they've also suffered a lot. They're not, also, they're not always available or, uh, to just work from home. Uh, they don't have the luxury that, that a lot of people do. They have to be on the job and expose themselves to COVID. So I think about the climate frontline workers, the people that are most impacted in the communities, the environmental justice communities, uh, the ones that are living near Superfund sites, the ones that are having toxic waste moved through their communities on trains where trails could de derail. Um, they're the ones that often are, of course, lowest income communities and uh, black and brown communities. And, and of course, there's been a lot of correlation with mapping of uh, the overlay of black and brown communities, uh, zip codes, and toxic waste. There's, there's a very close correlation there. So they're also, not, they're also not in neighborhoods where they have attorneys as a neighbor. Uh, they may not have high-level government officials as a neighbor. They don't have the people that can that have the experience or the education or the background to fight for them. So they're they're the most vulnerable, and they're the ones that we need to to be aware of. We need to track, keep track of the 
the issues that are impacting them. You know, you've probably heard of um, an area called Cancer Alley. Cancer Alley runs between New Orleans and Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And there's one of the highest concentration of toxic industries in the country are along there, and of course a very high concentration of black and brown communities. So the frontline workers now that I'm seeing in climate really are the young people. And, and those of you that are out there, uh, the young folks, these are your peers that are fighting and organizing. And there's global leaders now in climate change that are still in their teens, and it's really exciting. And so, I mean, if you have an interest in this, just know that you're not alone. There, there are groups and organizations out there, and you can organize locally in your own community. You know, we may talk about that a little more when we wrap up. But that's the front line, uh, the people that are being impacted. And, I mean, that feeling of helplessness has been changing uh, into feelings of empowerment because there are people that are in places now in positions that care. I mean, most of the attorneys that I know don't work for law firms. They work for nonprofit organizations. Um, they work for community-based organizations. Uh, there's, big, uh, there's been a big shift. A lot of them might work for a big firm for like two years and they say, oh, I'm out of here. I mean, this is not addressing my values. I might be making a lot of money, but um, that's not where my heart is. That's not where I need to be. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with you. I think that uh, what you've described is something that I think folks usually uh, tend, tend to speak towards because, you know, asthma, uh, mm-hmm. cancer, cancer alley, uh, being close to highways, super fun sites. These are all things that I think are true. And I think when, when, when I started this podcast, I, I was looking to change the narrative around this. And I, I want to post this to you and, and hear your reaction also, because I think when we use these terms like low income, you know, vulnerable, it, it, it paints a picture to me that these folks are not rich, right? And so many of these frontline communities have such rich history, rich wisdom, rich relationships with mother nature, you know? And I just think it's an opportunity that to change the narrative also on the fact that they are uh, well positioned to solve a lot of these issues, right? They are uh, full of energy. A lot of folks who I know are at the front line continue to fight through and they enjoy life, you know? So I would be curious to know just your thoughts on that because, uh, I like I said, I, I hear I hear the the sentiment of like, hey, they are, you used the analogy of, of the pandemic, you know, frontline workers. And it's also those folks, I think, who who are rich in many ways. And I'd just be curious to know a little bit of your thoughts on that. Well, I agree with you, Alfredo. I think that there's a lot of resources in the community. Uh, I mean, communities that have that have been through a lot historically have built a huge resilience and a whole bank of community knowledge. I mean, they own, people know their own neighborhoods best. They know each other's strengths best. They know their, the leadership in their communities. Uh, they're motivated. They, they want a healthy environment for their children just like anybody else. 
Um, you know, they want clean water to drink. So, I, I mean, communities often know what's best for themselves, and I think sometimes we forget. People in government often forget that they're they're they go in and study communities and write reports on communities, and then they leave. And so, you know, that paradigm is shifting, and I think there's been a also movement of just helping uh, folks in communities to, to understand how government works, too. Because sometimes you have to work within the system. You have to know how to give a public testimony, you know, and writing letters and, and doing sorts of things that can draw attention to the, the high intellect of your community um, that, that you know what's best, you know, for your own community. So things that... Yeah, yeah. I, I don't want to paint the picture of, of helplessness and hopelessness, and all these things are happening to us, and and we just have to slowly die away. That's right. Yeah, and I think it, it really manifested itself for me in academia, learning about it through an environmental science program and how they describe these communities, or you know, when you have folks who have x number of years doing carbon emissions or something like that they'll talk about frontline communities as such and as you know i have a, a really tight connections with a lot of these folks who are in the front line in peru and in other places and it's a different reality right and just like there's two different worlds here in, in the developed world and the developing world if you want to call it that uh i yeah i just wanted to invite you a little bit into that conversation so So when, when we talk about the climate frontline, I think folks also wonder like, okay, so we've talked about who those people are, how they're being impacted, the richness that the communities have. And, and so the, the question begs, how do you engage with them? What, what can people do in terms of getting clarity on their role? Because everybody has a different role to play. Mm-hmm. And so I'd be just curious to know a little bit of of how you've experienced that both in in your personal life as well as your mm-hmm. advances in your career. Okay. Well, what I've found is that the the people that are in more power, whether they're working with a public agency or maybe some of the larger environmental organizations, what I've seen works is when they start to get out of their comfort zone because there is kind of a bubble uh, that still exists with the environmental movement And some of the founders of some of the, the well-known global environmental organizations, they all, w- they were like friends at Yale or, you know, in the Yale School of Forestry or different places like that. And so they, and mostly male, white male. And so that's sort of the body of people that, that started founding these different organizations. And at least here in the U.S. <clears throat> in the U.S. Yeah. Yeah, in the U.S. Uh, but again, and and. So as they branched out and become international, obviously they've you know they've hired a lot of people from from local countries to to manage projects and and that sort of thing. But I mean that's sort of how these organizations founded here. And uh, even when I was in, in Madagascar, and um, I think the World Wildlife Fund was there, and they had these students from Duke uh, who were there who were you know training local folks on being guides in the different preserves. Uh, so, I mean that—that's a model that that's been going for a while, and, and it does need to shift and 
to more of a, a local empowerment model. And I think that that's getting out of the comfort zone. And so even for right now, I mean, I mean, I, I talk with a lot of organizations that are wondering how to engage more people of color in, in what they're doing. And it could be locally, it could be, you know, the Columbia Land Trust, or, you know, it could be Portland Audubon, or it could be you know, any, any number of organizations, Ecotrust. Uh, and, they, and they're not sure how to go about it because they just have operated in their own bubbles, you know, for so long. Yeah. So they have to, so they have to go into the communities and just sort of hang out and, <laughs> and not... Come, develop some relationships not, yeah yeah not come offering anything mm-hmm. you know and you know you you know all about this Alfredo. there's a lot of trust building that that has to happen first right um, yeah just person to person yeah and i did have marcelo on the show and we got a chance to speak with him a little bit about his mission to transform the whole environmental movement right mm-hmm. and so if folks are listening in and they want to check out that episode then feel free to check it out uh, i think it's titled Transforming a Movement with Marcelo Bonta. So I, I completely agree with you, Greg. And I think where I want to spend some time with you now is mentorship, because this is a term that I struggle with, to be honest with you. <laughs> but uh, let me tell you why I struggle with it. <laughs> because it's not a term that necessarily has a good translation in Spanish. <laughs> like when I think of folks who, who help me out in my community... I think the word elders is is probably a better fit. I just struggle with finding a right term for it. I would like to spend some time talking about this because I think for a lot of youth who want to be part of this environmental movement or put it another way, they have knowledge from their communities and they know they have a role to play in all this by leading organizations or leading initiatives that Perhaps, like you mentioned, um, organizations that have started with folks at Yale just don't have that perspective, that value they have, right? And so I'm curious to know a little bit of how you experience mentorship as a word, as well as how how you uh, kind of navigated that as you engage youth who have a different identity than you do, right? Uh, yeah, I would love to hear a little bit about how that experience is for you. Okay. Well, in my career, unfortunately, I didn't have mentors per se. Um, I think there weren't, there were very few people that looked like me that were doing the kind of work that I was doing. And uh, there, there was no one to, to really seek out at that time. Um, I mean, every now and then there would be an opportunity that would come up that would be afforded to me uh, just kind of randomly and and a really great experience would come out of that. Uh, for instance, someone asked me if I would want to train uh, to be a, a Peace Corps in-service trainer. And I hadn't, I'd never been in the Peace Corps, uh, but I was offered the opportunity to train for a week to learn how to to be an in-service trainer, and then to go overseas and teach uh, environmental education. And it, that was just a very random thing. It wasn't a mentor. It was not an ongoing relationship. I, I didn't have the opportunity to, to have those. But now I, I just feel real fortunate that I'm at a stage in my career where I can, I can mentor and I can share my life experience 
with, uh, with younger folks. And I agree that it's not just, um, here's how you do this, or you know, this, is, this is how you talk to people, or this is help with your resume, or, or that kind of thing. It really is, I think, as a mentor, just being myself, and just being myself helps others to see and experience what my values are. You know, what's important to me, uh, not just in my career, people that get to know me, they know about my children, they know, you know, they know something about my life. And, and that's relational. Yeah. yeah, thank you for that, Greg. I appreciate it. And another thing that also comes to mind for me is I, I realize that when, when navigating the United States culture, or just being in, in the United States, it it brings in perspectives of different people across the board, right? Native Americans, African Americans, Asian mm-hmm. Pacific Islanders, Asian Americans. I mean, the list goes on. I mean, we can get Latinx and so on and so forth, right? And what I realized is that I by picking individuals and working to to have them guide me in different ways i also grew understanding of their of their points of view right because as someone who now is a little more experienced in the environmental field or industry uh and having youth who who now you know i've gotten to know over maybe three or four years i've come to realize that there's a struggle with identifying with someone who does not share your your identity, right? And the struggle is good. I'm not saying it's bad. <laughs> the struggle <laughs> is good because it makes you grow and be more empathetic and be more relational, like you clearly pointed out. So I'd be curious to know, as we wrap up this show, what are some things people should keep in mind or or tips you can share to both, you know, youth like me who are now a few years into this movement and, and are trying to transform it and so on and so forth, as well as youth who are just starting right now, right, and may be looking for their first campaign to organize or maybe looking to just start the college journey period, right, or even just finish mm-hmm. high school, right? Yeah. Basic yeah. things. So what are some, some of your uh, words of wisdom there? Okay. Well, I think I would recommend to do something that, that Alfredo did when he first met me. He just introduced himself and uh, told me a little bit about himself. Uh, It takes a little bit of courage. (laughs) And, and, um, you know, a lot of kids are introverted or feel that there's some power dynamic or, you know, how can I talk to this person or that person's important or something like that. And, you know, the truth is most people are... Are, are flattered, you know, when a, when a young person comes along and says, you know, I really like that talk that you gave or the, the thing that you wrote, you know, I read about and, and I, I want to learn more about what you do. Uh, by and large, people will stop and, and take the time. So I just encourage you all to, to kind of make that move. You may, you may want to uh, practice your little spiel ahead of time if, if that helps to provide uh, some confidence. 
but just know that people people who are in that generation know that you know they're not going to be doing this work forever folks are going folks like you are going to come along uh, you're in this rapid learning mode you're like sponges you're absorbing so much you're impacted and stimulated by so many pieces of information in, in any given minute you know way more than it was you know a few decades ago and it's a lot to sort out and, and so to have someone that can help you to navigate through this whether you're in high school you know you're trying to decide what to major in in college you get to college uh, you find something you're excited about that you want to learn more about, and there's someone you can talk to that's in that profession that can give you more information about it or tell you their story. It's all about storytelling. You know, storytelling is a very ancient craft. And um, people, a lot of folks actually like to talk about themselves, and sometimes they don't really have opportunities. No one asks them. I'll, I'll just tell you this this one quick story. Uh, so there's a person who's written a book that's been reprinted for years now. It's called uh, What Color Is Your Parachute? His name is Richard Bowles. And he's you know, been known as a worldwide authority on career development. And Richard Bowles would have this, you know, do these seminars around the country. And uh, actually, uh, weekend workshops. And some of them were, were days long. And one of the things that he would have people do is to cold call someone that's doing something that you would like to be doing in the future. So say they're in Minneapolis. People come from around the country to Minneapolis. They're in Richard Bull's workshop for a week. They say, pick a company and just ask for 20 minutes of their time. Can I come in and talk to you for 20 minutes? So he has all the, all the students do that. And these are not students like high, you know, college. I mean, these are, like, these are adults. And so what would happen is people would... would uh, Pick up the phone, call, and say someone at Hewlett Packard, or th- I guess 3M, you know, big company is in Minneapolis. You know, I really want to talk with one of the managers. I want to learn about what they do. Make an appointment, and they go. And they start, and they say, well, thank you for this, this period of time. Often they would end up, they would keep the person in the office for an hour. I mean, the person got to talk about themselves. They got to tell their story. And, and share their journey. Sometimes the people that just made those random calls, they actually got offered a job before. <laughs> and and Richard Bowles would say, you know, don't don't accept any job offers. It's, it's, it might seem like a setup. This is not what we're trying to do. We're really trying to gather information. But the point is, they were so enamored by having someone come and talk to them and ask them about themselves that they were willing to share more than what that the person imagined that they would get uh, when they arrived. So I hope that's a little bit of a confidence booster for you as you go out and, and think about who you want to talk with. Uh, people like me, we feel a responsibility to you and to your career. And, you know, Alfredo's an example. There, there are other uh, particularly young professionals, young males of color, you know, that I've had the good fortune to to help and support uh, it's very fulfilling to me so he's doing me a favor and and so when you're reaching out to folks uh, and asking them for to tell their story you're it, it's symbiotic as Alfred said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think for me 
the it's the relationship really and maybe if yeah I, th- I think the word relationship resonates more with me because relationships get people out of poverty relationships get people through education relationships make connections to resources it's relationships that make us resilient right that's and, right and whether you're talking about earthquakes wildfires covid right it's it's relationships that are going to show up in in your space and when you have relationships you are that much more resilient so i definitely appreciate the relationship that i have with you greg and i appreciate you being on the show today uh any other shout outs or yeah how how can people find out more about the work you do and 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 stay in touch with you okay so alfredo did mention that i have a private consulting firm it's called creating tomorrow's workforce and creating tomorrow's workforce works uh, particularly with natural resource agencies, NGOs, and environmental firms to support their efforts to diversify their workforce. So we do that through working with their strategic plans, uh, coaching hiring managers, uh, reviewing their internal HR processes with with an equity lens, developing internship programs. Uh, So that's a work that I enjoy. It brings together my environmental and natural resources background with my workforce development background. So it's, it's a perfect match, you know, after spending several decades in government. Uh, it, it's really nice to be able to help organizations to, to be better and get better. Uh, and then we talked about a few nonprofit organizations that are bringing uh, folks of color outdoors. And so I just wanted to mention People of Color Outdoors, which was founded in uh, 2017. And um, hiking kayaking, cycling, cross-country skiing, kind of a range of things. Uh, There's a a meetup site for People of Color Outdoors and a Facebook page uh, that you could go on. And uh, and then I could be reached uh, particularly at uh, tomorrowsworkforce at gmail.com. Awesome. Thank you so much, Greg, for being on the show. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Alfredo. It's really been a pleasure. Well, that was my conversation with Greg Woolley, a a person in, in my life that I'm really thankful for. There's just countless instances when Greg showed up in my life to just hear me and support me. In fact, I remember clearly telling him about uh, coca tea, and I remember other folks would give me this like strange look when I when I would tell them about me drinking coca tea and Greg was just remain curious. And I'm sure, I think I even gave him a coca tea once to, to try. So yeah, really hope that you enjoyed that conversation with Greg on these topics of education, mentorship. And I'm also curious, you know, what are ways in which you, the audience members are establishing these relationships? Because I know it looks completely different for men It looks completely different for women. There's different dynamics that play. And I'm just curious to know what ways do you seek out these opportunities? What are the informal ways specifically? And if you have a question or would like to chime in on on what those ways are to the show, please be sure to visit Climate Frontline at, uh, I mean, climatefrontline.com. There's a voicemail tab there where you can leave your question or comment, whether that's for me or Greg or any other member of the community. 
So if you enjoyed the conversation today, also please share it with a friend who may benefit from hearing this dialogue. And yeah, be sure to follow us on the different social media platforms. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We're on Twitter at CFL underscore podcast and on Facebook and Instagram as Climate Frontline. So you have tuned into the Climate Frontline podcast. We are found in all major podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And we engage community leaders, social movement leaders, industry leaders, artists to change the climate narrative so that we put the microphone that much closer to those people who are at the front line of climate change. I will see you next time. Peace.